Good morning, everybody. Again, Matt is sick, and so I'm going to be bringing you the word today, and I'm so excited to. We've been going through Romans at Restoration on Wednesday nights, and I'm just going to give you what's coming next. We're in Romans 12 today, so if you can open your Bibles to the first eight verses of Romans 12, and uh, I'm going to pray before we get going. Lord, Father, God, this is your word. Your spirit inspired it to people. You've kept it, and your spirit illuminates us, illuminates it in our eyes, and I pray, God, that's exactly what happens. Don't let me get in the way, and please, God, um, through your spirit, help us learn from your word to change how we serve you and change how we love you and to change how we love others and to change how we live so we can better please you. We love you, God, and we need your help. So please speak to us with your word today. Amen. So this passage starts with therefore. If you've ever taken any Bible study classes, when you come up to the word therefore, you need to go before it to find out what it's there for, right? Uh-huh, yeah. I heard a couple groans. A couple of you guys took some long classes. But it starts with therefore I urge you. And this therefore is there because in the first 11 chapters, Paul has laid down a deep and wide base of the gospel. See, he wrote this letter to the church in Rome because they had not yet been visited by an apostle to help them be established in sound doctrine, especially in the gospel. Um, and, and so he, he writes to give them apostolic teaching to strengthen their faith, not to, not to establish it in the sense that they didn't have one, didn't have faith and needed faith, not that they didn't have the gospel and needed the gospel, but they hadn't been visited by an apostle yet, which was an important part of the blossoming church at that time. And Paul writes this letter to lay down a foundation, to help them be established, not in founding, but established as in strengthened. He is shoring up their foundation. So they have strength, stability, and based on uh, apostolic teaching. So what Paul was given by Jesus, he's now giving to the church in Rome. So he's written 11 chapters. And I'm really briefly lay out the, the, the kind of the sequence, the scope and sequence of the curriculum so far. So in chapter one, he introduced this whole idea of the gospel by making sure it was very clear that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. In chapter two, he lays down the details of God's righteous judgment against all sinners whether you're a moral or immoral Jew, whether you're a moral or immoral Gentile, you are a sinner and have fallen short of the glory of God. No matter how good you think you are or how many things you do right or what family you were born into or what country or to what sort of privilege, we are all sinners in need of a savior. In chapter three, he talks about how righteousness is in Christ and apart from the law, how the law is is unable. If you keep the whole law, you're still not going to be righteous enough. You're not going to be righteous enough because if you stumble at one point, you're guilty of all. The law was never meant to be a rule book or to be steps to be saved. It was how to walk in faith to God. And it was also a tutor to lead us to Christ by showing us our sin and our need. In chapter four, he talks about justification by grace through faith and how that's always been the deal. It's always been the deal. Works have never saved. Why? Because works our works, people's works, are insufficient for the task. In chapter 5, he talks about the result 
of justification, which is peace with God. When we are justified in the eyes of the law, we, made, we are made just by the just justifier. And when God gives us his righteousness, we are made justified. His righteousness isn't tainted by our sin. Our sin is obliterated by his righteousness. It's a beautiful thing where he credits his righteousness to our account. So where we were bankrupt before, eternally, now we are flush, right? Totally in the black with an infinite credit column because of his righteousness, perfect holy righteousness. And six talks about freedom from sin, beautiful thing. And then seven about this marriage to Christ and how we were dead, spiritually dead. And so freed, freed from the, the, the law that held us. You know, when, when a person gets the death penalty and they die, the law is satisfied, right? Well, we were dead to sin and now we are alive to Christ. And in that, there is a battle, there is a struggle between the two natures, between the, the flesh, which is still dead and dying and needs to be remade still. We're waiting for the completion of our salvation. For those of you who are in Christ now, you have been justified. You are now continuing to be, continuing to be sanctified as you look more like Jesus all the time. And one day you will be glorified where this body that will die, this body that has known and loves sin is going to be remade. We need a new body. We need a new body. But we still, and so we have this living spirit in us and we have this dead flesh and there's a battle. And at the end of Romans 7, we, Paul pours his heart out about this battle. It's like, I hate the things that I do. I want to do this, but I don't do it. And I don't do the thing I want to do. It's like, what a wretched man I am. Who's going to set me free from this body of death? Just waiting, just waiting, waiting for that perfect peace of glorification. And the next is life in the Spirit, how even though we struggle, we can be assured that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because as chapter 8 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified in the past tense because the work is done, right? We're just waiting to, to, for the completion of it. But that chain, that unbroken chain of salvation gives us so much security because it's not in our hands and the way we act and live. It's in God's hands. It's in God's hands. He was the one that did the work in making us alive in him and he's the one that helps us look more like him every day. And then in 9, 10, and 11, Paul answers a really big question of what about the Jews? God's holy chosen people, what about them? A lot of them have rejected Jesus. And he talks about them, how God has set them aside for now so we can extend salvation to the Gentiles in fulfillment of Scripture, both the setting aside and the hardening of the hearts of the Jews, which came up in John 12 recently, and hardening the hearts of the Jews to extend salvation to the Gentiles. And part of that plan was to make the Jews jealous. It's like, wait a second, but that's our salvation. Wasn't that, that's our promise. That's our Messiah. Hopefully, they get that. It's like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Hang on. And how blessed we are as Gentiles to be grafted in. We were wild olive trees, been, wild olive branches being grafted into the cultivated olive tree is the picture he uses. And what a blessing that is to us, not to make us haughty or prideful, but to give us gratitude. Gratitude. The Jews are supremely blessed among all the people of the earth because of the heritage of God's provision and care for them. What a wonderful thing. And so in 9, he talks about the children of promise, not achievement, not of birth, children of promise, and how the word of faith is what's required. And that's the end of the law and how God's faithful preservation of a remnant of Israel will come to fruition. Um, even now, Jews are being saved 
in mass as a nation. They have hard hearts. But Paul himself is a Jew, a saved Jew at this time, writing about this. And one day God will remove that hardening after the fullness of the Gentiles have entered the kingdom. I don't have time to really go into this now with a lot of complicated stuff. But we've got good news for us and for the Jews that God's going to remove the hardening of their hearts. And it says all Israel will be saved. Not all Israelites, but all Israel. A representation of every single tribe of the people of Israel will be saved. The hardness will be removed and they're going to be brought in again and blessed. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. And all of this is just deep and wide doctrine of the gospel. And then at the end of chapter 11, he ends with this amazing doxology. Starting in verse 33 of chapter 11, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So he ends this 11 chapters of just gospel. The past, present, and future of the gospel. And sums it up in this doxology culminating in verse 36. From him, through him, and to him are all things, and to him be the glory. And so the therefore of chapter 12, 1 is really, therefore, based on this gospel. Therefore, if you understand the gospel, if you understand the gospel, here's what. Here's where we live it out. And just like a lot of New Testament epistles, the front part and, and the, the proportions change depending on the epistle, but the front part is a lot of doctrine. And then after that, it's how we live it. I mean, just like a, a sermon, <laughs> you hear the doctrine and then you hear the action steps. It, it acts that same way. So we've gotten a lot of doctrine about the gospel, and this is the how. That was the why, and this is what it looks like now. So therefore, if you believe the gospel, how does someone truly, how does someone live if they truly understand the gospel? He says this, Therefore, I urge you, brother, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you, may, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Living sacrifices. And Paul urges them, which I think is interesting. He doesn't command them. I command you to live as living sacrifices. He urges them. Why? Because they're believers. He doesn't have to command them. He just wants to urge them. Because then when he gets that ball rolling, it's, it's a downhill thing. The gravity of the gospel, the gravity of your new nature in Christ will pull you in that direction. He's urging them, urging them to present themselves a, a living and, and holy sacrifice. 
It will happen in the life of a believer who understands the gospel, but we all need urging now and again, right? Because that rock is going to roll downhill until it hits something, right? And so we need, we need, we need people to urge us. We need, we need this urging. And so he urges them. And he says, by the mercies of God, present your bodies. By the mercies of God, present your bodies. We can't present our bodies as living sacrifices of the king unless we have received his mercy. Those who live according to the flesh can't please God. That's Romans 8, 8. But by the mercies of God, we can present our bodies. Now, bodies sometimes is brushed over, thought of as simplistic, but this is a very comprehensive thing, this this idea of presenting your bodies. Our bodies is, is how our soul expresses itself in this world. What comes out of our heart is done in our body. What comes out of our heart it come, uh, comes, comes through our mouth, comes into our thoughts, goes into our actions. When you're talking about the body, this includes everything you do with your body. And this is a major aspect to intimacy with Christ, where we don't closet one part of our lives from him, hide a box, you know, where we, where we have our phone locked from Christ, Right? Sarah's got the password to my phone. It's in her fingerprint. She can get into my phone anytime. And that's what we're talking about. We don't have anything kept back. There's not one thing we participate in that we haven't surrendered to God. This is the idea. This is the idea. There's no compartmentalization. There's no, there's no uh, separation. You know, you're not a different person when you go to work. You ought to be a living sacrifice when you go to work or whatever you do. Everything you do, say, think, taste, everything in your relationship with others, the way you work, what you do with your time, money, talent, present everything you are to God as a response to the mercies of God. You give to him all that you are, have, and care about. Submit your entire self and life to him. This is hard and it's tricky, partly because our heart, our, our, uh, our flesh is deceptive. We think, we think we're doing it, we think we're doing it, and sometimes we find out that, oh, wait, if I keep finding resistance to this thing that I think I'm called to do, maybe I am not actually called to do that. And it could be a good thing you want to do, but God might have something better for you. So many people, like here's a good example. So many people want to get married, and marriage is a good, th- marriage is a good thing. But God doesn't have marriage for everybody. You may be seeking a good thing, but it's not good for you because God doesn't want you to do it. And celibacy is a gift, a lot of freedom in being single. Not that you're a ball and chain, Sarah. I love you. <clears throat> but this is what we see in the gospel. The gospel is a, a dying to self to live for Christ, right? Putting to death the flesh. We've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but he who lives within me, right? And the life I live, I live through him, for him, to him. The gospel is, a, is not just a door you walk through to get into Christianity and now you're saved, you can just set it and forget it. Um, the gospel is a, is a worldview, not just a one-time ascent. It's not just a password to get into heaven or fire insurance. It is a worldview that changes everything. And you never move past the gospel, you just get deeper in it. You just realize more areas in your life that you have yet to submit to God and turn away and re- repent from. You just learn more about it. You just, learn, you, get, you just get deeper in it. You get a better taste for it. Your palate changes. You stop wanting the junk food and you start loving the healthy food. I'm not talking kale. Nobody should love kale, but <laughs> other healthy food, other healthy food. But the gospel changes our palate. 
right? Someone who's remembering the gospel, who's living the gospel, who's, who's got that gospel mindset on their world is not going to be shying away from looking at their sin. They're going to want to know where they've sinned and where they sin and where they have yet to look like Jesus so that it can be put to death in the flesh so they can live for Christ. Hearing about your sin is not a, it, yeah, it's, a, it's always a bummer, but for a believer, that's so good to know, right? So good to know. This is a worldview that changes everything. Changes everything. Should change everything. It should color everything. <clears throat> Romans 6, 12 through 14 says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts and do not go, go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. See, once when, before Christ, we were slaves to sin, and that is a brutal taskmaster that will whip you to death, and we are freed from that taskmaster if we are in Christ Jesus, yet sometimes we go back as if it was a good master. We have the freedom now, no longer being shackled, we have the freedom now to choose. We've been given grace to freely choose to obey the Lord and when a believer sins, it's not because they are bound to it, it's because they have willingly chosen it. But remember, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and there's help available because we can choose the, the wonderful master as free, free bondservants, right? You've been freed from your service, your indentured servitude, but you love your master so much you willingly take on the mark of a bondservant. You put yourself under the master forever. We don't present ourselves to sin as believers. We have to present ourselves to the master to be used as instruments or tools of righteousness in his hands. So we present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, this concept of sacrifice isn't the minor sacrifice of turning off the TV to do the dishes or putting your phone away so your wife can talk about her day. This is a death. This is a killing. That's what sacrifice was in the Old Testament. It was a bloody death where something had to die, where people would sacrifice bulls knowing that the bull isn't going to cover their sin and God's just saying, I'll take it for now, but a better permanent sacrifice is coming. We are to be a living death, a living killing. It's a weird paradox, but as a living sacrifice, a living death, it's a potent reminder that we ought to be constantly picking up that cross and putting to death the flesh, right? Putting to death the deeds of the flesh, considering, considering our body, which is going to die, is dead already so that we can just live for Christ. We need to Remember, as living sacrifices, not to crawl off the altar. We stay put. We stay put. I always wonder what Isaac thought as his dad was putting him on the altar to sacrifice him. Like, he was older than sometimes the storybooks like to draw him. Did he willingly stay? Did he struggle against ropes? We ought to stay willingly, freely, as living sacrifices of the Most High. We have to pick up that cross, the symbol of death and shame to the flesh, and get on that altar. And this paradox is borne out in our battle with the flesh. Again, our sinful flesh is dying while a regenerate soul is alive, and they're constantly at war while we await the completion of our salvation. 
you know, glorification. Until then, there is a battle because they can't live together. When you say yes to one, you say no to the other. You're either going to say yes to the spirit or yes to the flesh, and you've got to say no to the other. And beyond just being a living sacrifice and really saying no to the flesh is super hard because our flesh loves our sin, loves our sin, craves it, haunts us with it, right? We see it everywhere, constantly at us. A major source of Christian suffering really is, is that, right? It's saying no to the flesh and the consequences that come with it and the deprivation we feel for the sake of righteousness. Now, the word holy means set apart, but it's, it's grander than that. Really, it is. It's, I think it's God's most important attribute for us to understand or at least try to or at least look at and meditate on is his holiness and how set apart God is from everything else. And for us, it means that in order to be an acceptable living sacrifice, we must be holy as he is holy. We need to be set apart in word and deed, and that starts in the, in the heart. To present our entire selves, including everything we're involved in as a living sacrifice to God, is impossible to us without his help. So thankful he gives us his spirit to help, and he will use us as instruments of righteousness in this world, declaring boldly the mercies of God and worshiping Him in all things. And we need the Spirit for that. Now we learned something cool about worship here as well. Uh, we, I like to think of it as a nickname when we call the singing time worship, like a nickname, because that's not really just, that's not just worship, right? Worship is not just when we all stand and sing together, right? That, that is worship. We are worshiping together corporately. But we drastically cheapen worship when we just refer when we just think of worship being singing together we miss out on the infinite ways we can worship god day to day we can live a life that worships god we can live a life that praises his name and draws draws attention to him and his grace and his mercy yes god loves singing massive choir lofts are going to be built in the new kingdom like the dimensions on there are just astounding. God loves singing. He wants to be praised with cymbals and trumpets and stringed instruments and drums. He wants loud praise, shouts of joy, new songs, but that's not the only way to worship. With this view of worship being a life of sacrifice to him, a living and holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship, we can see that we can worship God while doing the dishes, Right? If you do your work heartily for the Lord, not for men, wanting to love and serve others. You can, do, you can worship God while you're paying your taxes, letting go of your finances, saying, God, I'm going to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You got me. Doesn't matter how much they're taking out of my cut, right? You can do all things for his glory. Like 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. We can live a life that worships him. And then we can also come and sing together and worship him together. But everything we do this morning is worshiping God. Pray together, talk about the word together, sing his praises together. So much worship, so much worship. But we need the gospel as our corrective lenses to see that, to see the ways we can worship God. And we need to understand that in order to, let's say, mow the lawn in a way that worships God, it's not the action that changes, it's the why you do it that changes. See, lots of people live good lives. They give to the poor, they, they help others, they, um, they love the, the, the needy and the broken, they 
Um, you know, they're just, they, they, they're kind, they don't lie. Lots of people do, right? That's why people have this question all the time. Why do good people, how could God send good people to hell? Well, he, he doesn't. He doesn't send good people to hell. And there are no good people. When we have the gospel lens, it's not, the, not necessarily some of the stuff that changes. You get saved today, you still go to work tomorrow, right? The same job. You drive the same car, you live in the same house, you have the same wardrobe, but it's the why. The why of everything you do changes. And that does change the how sometimes. It does change what you do. Because if you, if you have the mindset of giving yourself to the purposes of God in any moment, every moment, there will be some changes in the things you do. And, and, and maybe the way you fill out that, uh, that tax form or the, or the way you talk to your boss or the way you write that email, the way you uh, communicate uh, to other drivers on the road. <clears throat> the biggest change happens inside. And we could be doing all sorts of good stuff, but unless, unless we've been freed from our sin and we do it with a view of worshiping God in mind, it won't please Him. Again, those who live according to the flesh cannot please God. What pleases God is giving ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. In order to live this way, in total surrender to God, having that why that makes an internal difference, uh, again, is impossible to us without his help, right? Even perfect people, Adam and Eve, couldn't, couldn't even obey God in just one thing when they were perfect and sinless, right? So why would we, who are so loaded down with that, think we could do it ourselves? No, we have so much hope Verse 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This, is, this happens to us. As we meditate on Scripture, and as we pray, as we walk in the Spirit, as new creations with living souls and heartbeats, with a mind to serve God, we are transformed, not because we have mustered it up on ourselves, or we've done the right recipe and the right, you know, the right things to get it done. No, God changes us. God works in our heart. The Holy Spirit produces the, the fruit that he produces. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit, not the fruits of you. <clears throat> and so we, we are transformed by him. Now this, this phrase, be conformed, be conformed, that's talking about a masquerade. That's a masquerade. That's when... That's when like being conformed to the world, it's, 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 it's like an outward mimicry that contradicts inward conviction. It comes in a lot of different flavors. You know, the way you talk or present yourself online, the way you date, where you go to for advice. Confirming, uh, being conformed to the world is when a Christian masquerades as a citizen of the kingdom of the world and hides their kingdom of heaven accent, right? They hide their kingdom of, kingdom of heaven accent. We are never called to blend in with the world. Never. We should be transformed. We're to let our, let our light shine before men so they can see our good deeds and glorify the Father in heaven. We are to be salt and light. Those are noticeable things. Noticeable things. This outward change reflects inward transformation. Apples growing in an apple tree. And it does make us stand out. As we meditate on Scripture and seek to learn from it, not just about it. Learning about it is easy. Learning from it is difficult. Learning about it is a lot of facts and figures and details and Greek words, all wonderful stuff, 
learn those things, but we seek to learn from it and be changed by it. And when we do that, we find that God, through Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, renews our minds and transforms our lives. And the heart is the epicenter of the tectonic shift that reforms the landscape of our lives. And this transformation is not natural to us, and our flesh resists it, like, the things of, like all the things of God. And in order to be transformed, like C.S. Lewis said, we need to be struck by God's hammer and chisel. And he said, the blows of God's hammer, which hurt so much, shape us into who we need to be. <clears throat> he transforms us as we submit ourselves to him and his use, to his mighty hands. And yes, we will suffer the loss of, once we, of what we once held dear. The sin we love so much and the idols we bow down to will fall away. And without exception, people are made to worship God But in our rebellion against his plan and purposes for us, we worship the creation instead of the creator. Our independence condemns us. Our desire to choose for ourselves condemns us. Our love of money, power, influence, adoration, and beauty condemns us. Or our beauty and vanity, I should say, because beauty is wonderful. Our pride condemns us. This transformation is not natural. It's inhuman, especially for Americans. So much of that encompasses the American dream, right? Wealthy, healthy, outwardly successful, comfortable, at ease, retire whenever you want so you can be socially acceptably lazy. I know, right? I know, right? I'm, yeah. It's not just un-American, it's inhuman and unnatural to us because we want those things so desperately, so desperately. Now I'm going to give you, this isn't in my notes, but it's really, it's really useful. Here's a, here's a little test for you, idol test. If you want to see if you have an idol in your life, think about something and think, am I willing to sin to get it or am I willing to sin to keep it? <clears throat> and when you understand the full gospel, when you understand our need and his grace and you present yourself to God in full, you will be transformed. Your definitions of success and failure will change. Your grip on your earthly possessions and goals will tremble and fail and the value you place on your independence will come crashing down. And that is good. The world will say that's nonsense and foolishness. What are you doing with yourself? Don't you care about your future? You say, yes, I do. So what does this renewal lead to? It leads to so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, so that you may prove or reveal or uh, discern that which is good and acceptable and perfect. See, the transformation of our mind and a constant submitting of ourselves to the will of God as living sacrifices leads you to a greater understanding of what God's will is. Why? Because the Spirit is present in you, transforming your mind. You'll see it in His Word. You'll see it in life. You'll follow the Spirit, and He'll lead you down a windy path that is wonderful. Wonderful. Have you ever prayed for guidance in making a decision? You ever struggled with, wow, what is God's will for my life in this? What, like, what, is, what does God want for me? I've got these options. I don't know what to do. We all search for these answers and we go about tracking them down in different ways. We look for open doors or good feelings or signs from heaven, but have you tried fully submitting 
to him and letting go and letting him who is above you in the chain of command make the decisions? Abiding in him and letting him make your path straight? Letting the word of God be the light to your feet and the lamp to your path? When we do that, when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all the rest is added to us, we will, we will start to see what the will of God is, in part because he changes our desires. The things we want will reflect the things he wants because we're alive in him and he's changing us and transforming us. And so a person who is fully walking in the spirit, thriving in the relationship with the Lord, kind of does what they want because what they want is what God wants. What they want is his glory. What they want is the good of others. What they want is the gospel proclaimed. What they want is to die to self and to live for righteousness, fleeing from sin and clinging to what is good. That's what they'll want. What a beautiful place that would be in, and that's what it's going to be like in heaven, where everything we want to do is going to be holy, perfect, and acceptable. But sometimes we, or sometimes, a lot of times, we get distracted on what's, what's in front of us. You know, we see the wind and the waves, we think we're going to die, and Jesus is napping on a pillow. You know, Jesus calls us out on the, on the waters in the midst of the, the wind and the waves and the storm, and we're walking on it, and then, and then we go, oh no, the wind and the waves and the storm. And Jesus is like, come on, you're just walking on the water. Like, you're just looking at me. <laughs> we get so distracted, and we think we don't know what God's will is, but we're all like this. You know, we just got to stay locked in. Present yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness, as a living sacrifice. You were not your own. You were bought with a price. And in that transaction, you gave God your sin, which was driving you to an eternal grave, and he gave you life, a hope, a purpose, the fullness of joy, his spirit to help every step of the way. Oh, it's a beautiful transaction. Beautiful transaction. But we have to stay on that altar, right? We got to stay on that altar. We can't climb down thinking it's uncomfortable. You know, I just want to do it my own way. I want to take my eyes off Jesus for a while because the storm is kind of freaking me out. And one final note here. The word spiritual, um, in, in verse 1, spiritual, uh, the Greek word is logikos, um, literally translated as reasonable or rational. Because when you truly understand the gospel, The only reasonable reaction is total surrender and worship. Total surrender and worship. We cling to it. We trust in his grace. Now, putting it out, getting out there with it. What do we do with it then, church, as the church? In verse 3, it says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Lots and lots in here. But first, Paul is exercising his apostolic authority in teaching the church in Rome, strengthening them uh, with the gifts he's been given. He never once, never once says of himself, listen to me, listen to my message. This is... This is what you need to learn from me solo, and it, and it stops there at Paul. He sends it on. We see that, that humility. He wasn't prideful in himself. On the contrary, he understood the gospel, and he had a right view of himself, not thinking too highly of himself. In Philippians 3, 7 through 11, we see this. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, 
I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That is not a proud man at all. That is someone who gets their place. That's humility, right? Understanding where we're at in comparison to God. It's a right view of himself. That it's all God. It's all him. And any blessing he's got is because of the grace of God. So he starts this next thing through, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone, that's his spiritual gift. That's his service to the church. You'll never hear from him, trust me, because I've been there and done that. But rather, he sought to humbly glorify God through his life, wherever God led him, whether in life or death, like Philippians 1.20 says, I seek to give glory to God, whether by my life or my death. He uses himself as an example, not of excellence, just like all the people in the Bible. Not one of them is the hero of the story, right? They're all the drowning kids saved by the lifeguard who is Jesus. Jesus is the only hero, the only model in the Bible, we should be imitating, right? He is our goal. But he uses himself as an example of losing everything to attain the pearl of great price or as an example of the fulfillment of Jesus' promises that will be persecuted and suffer for his sake or as an example that God can make much of the worst of sinners. And so from that author, we read an admonishment not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And Paul, in the flesh, had a lot to brag about. Great career, Great family, lots and lots of privilege, lots and lots of advantage, but also he worked really hard. He worked really, really hard for what he got. He was passionate and motivated. And he, and he said it was all rubbish, all of it. <clears throat> it's tempting to think on our life in the flesh and overestimate ourselves and overestimate ourselves. But what does the gospel say about us? That we are nothing, blind, ignorant, hard-hearted, foolish, sin-loving, death-pursuing idolaters. As this, and as this passage teaches us, faith is allotted to us. Like Ephesians 2 says, grace and faith are gifts given to us, like salvation. God authored salvation. We were lost in our sin, and so God came down from heaven to come and get us. But we look at ourselves in the flesh, and we compare ourselves to others with worldly ideals and worldly ideas and, uh, and we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Now he flips that on, his head, on its head. So he says, uh, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to, but to think as so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each measure of faith. So balanced with this is boasting in the Lord because in God you have everything. You have riches. I mean, the difference between a, a rich man, uh, oh wait, I'm gonna, I'm gonna botch this the saying. Uh, anyway, so a poor man with Jesus is more rich than a rich man without, right? <clears throat> that's what we're talking about. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ, right? We see what we are in him. We see the power and the love that he has for us, the unique purpose he's got for us, and we rejoice in that. We boast in that. Paul often boasted in what God had done in his life because it gave God glory to do the work in him. 
It gave God glory the work to, to help him slay his sin and turn to righteousness, to persevere in the face of trials and beatings and shipwreck and snakebite and all the things that Paul went through. It is glory to God that Paul endured because Paul was God's servant, a living sacrifice. And we ought to have that, that sober-minded view of ourselves that we don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, but we look at ourselves as new creations in Christ Jesus, made with a holy purpose. A believer with sound judgment will think nothing of themselves, but highly of what they've been given by the king. And what we've been given by the king is intended to be used in his service to accomplish his purposes as one united body. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And so he's gone from reminding us to be, urging us to be, living in holy sacrifices, totally devoted as an act of worship to the plan and purposes of God. Not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by him, by his word, by his spirit, to be changed so we can know what the will of God is. And now he's going to urge them, urge them to do it. All right? So what's the will of God for your life? How do you live this out practically? Here it is. We have many members. This is our area of responsibility as Christians. Area of responsibility. In the same way that our body parts are diverse in appearance and function, all of us are diverse in appearance and function. And that's a wonderful thing. I mean, just think about the harmony of the human body, all the pieces working together and the, and the wide uh, the wide area of effect that, that happens to our body when one little thing goes out. When one little thing is damaged, we feel it. It ripples all, all throughout. You know, you've got a stomachache and you're curled up on the floor. Your entire body is taking a posture of pain because one part is suffering. You walk with a limp because you stubbed a toe. You know, Ugh, I broke my pinky toe like six months ago or wherever it was. And that little thing caused problems because it was injured. It wasn't working right. and It was causing constant pain to the rest of me. I was constantly aware of that darn little toe. And it was swollen for ages. I never re realized how often I bumped that little toe until I broke it. <clears throat> and we, just like, just like our body parts, we all have a job to do. And it bears repeating, don't think too highly of yourself. God is calling you to be a dependent part of his body, dependent part of his body. My hand is attached, connected. My lungs are attached and connected. My big toe is attached, connected, and useful. You'd fall flat on your face without your big toes. There's a purpose, a reason for everything here, and it's all unique, and one thing can't serve as another thing. And if my hand is jealous of my liver, and my hand wants to replace my liver, my liver, my hand, we're going to have a problem. And so... In humility, we rejoice in where God has us so we can be part of a healthy, functioning, strong body. We are to serve one another. The heart could think it's the most important part of the body. I'm the most important part. But the heart isn't going to do any good without the lungs. It's completely ineffective without the veins, the blood vessels. Right? It's just, it's dependent, just like everything else, right? It's dependent. We need the parts around us to be in good health. 
You are not of your own and you belong to God. And if you understand the gospel, you will become a servant. Because that's what we're talking about, being a servant, a discipling disciple. Right? Your, your discipleship is your solo walk with the Lord. And when you disciple someone else, you're helping them walk with the Lord. And this is it. We help others. They help us. We have to live in community. Otherwise, we're trying to be a severed arm, a gallbladder just there on the table, you know, an array of toes. But <clears throat> and there's no definition in the Bible for, of a Christian that is exempt from serving others. If you're a passive you're coming to church just to receive, going to life group just to receive, going to Bible studies just to receive, but never looking for ways to serve others, never looking for ways to spur each other on to love and good works, never looking for a way to help, relieve a burden. You are neglecting the grace God has given to you by God for others. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness of deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You cannot do it solo. You are not going to make it by yourself. And so we, and so for all of us, all of you who have been born again into the kingdom of heaven, you are called to be members of one another, specifically called to do what only you can do because God created you in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. It's Ephesians 2.10. We have a job to do here. So don't neglect the people you are most clearly called to serve. That's everybody here. Just, you can look around. These are your people, right? These are your people. The elders of the church are called to help equip you to do this, which is why we do church, so you can have teaching. It's why we meet during the week to help counsel you, but it's your job to be the body to one another. I can't do your job for you, and I shouldn't. I'm not you. I can't do what you do. I would fail. You are so much better at being you than I am at being you. I promise you. So do you, and help me, please. I need you. Matt needs you. All the elders need you just as much as you need us. We all have our peace, our place. The responsibility to proper steward, properly steward the gift given to you is, is yours. And you cannot do it if you are not first worshiping God with your body, presenting yourself as a living sacrifice. Why? Because worldly means don't accomplish spiritual purposes, spiritual goals. They can't be accomplished by worldly wisdom, worldly methods, worldly ideals, worldly wise. So as we present ourselves as living sacrifices, it's like putting your oxygen mask on first before you help you know, your kids. You need to breathe so you can help them breathe. You need to be attached so you can love and serve others. It's an order. It's a progression. And this is a radically different kind of relationship than the world has with each other. Radically different. Just like a Christian marriage is not at all similar to a worldly marriage. Yeah, there's some outward similarities, but the why is so different, and that changes the how 
A godly marriage, a Christian marriage, is not the same relationship as a worldly marriage. And our relationships with each other are not the same as worldly friendships. It can't be. It shouldn't be. There's a much bigger, better purpose to why we hang out. Yeah, we can snack on pizza and chips, and that's fun. We can talk about movies and games, and that's awesome. But if I neglect to challenge you in your faith, if I neglect to confess my sin to be prayed for, if I neglect sharing a word that I've gotten from the Lord and his, from his word, if I don't pass it on to you, I'm neglecting you. We may hang out all day, but I could absolutely neglect a relationship if I don't do what I can in taking the opportunity to encourage your faith. It is so different. And if you don't treat your friends, uh, your Christian friends like Christians, you don't, you, don't, you don't use your gifts to help serve them. You could actually be contributing to them being conformed to the world. That's scary. So when you're with them, how can, you, how can you benefit them? How can you serve them? Do you seek to encourage them with the word and humility? Do you confess your sins? Do you confront one another when they're struggling in sin? Do you bring the word to them when you sin against someone? Do you ask forgiveness, which is hard? Saying I'm sorry is easy. That's just how you feel. But asking forgiveness, like the Bible says, is really hard. It requires humility. Oof. Do you do that? Are you quick to listen, quick to forgive, quick to overlook a fault? Do you talk... Uh, do you talk about your faith with others? Do you rejoice in the word together? Or would that make your friendship awkward? Would that make things weird in your relationship? You're out shooting with a guy and, and you say, hey man, how's your walk? Would that make things weird? I've been there. I've been there. On both sides of it. Where someone brought up something spiritual and it made me feel uncomfortable. Shame on me. Or I brought something up and made them feel uncomfortable. This is what we're supposed to do with each other. We need to love and prefer others seeking their good above your own. And so since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given us, this is verse 6, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, there's work for you to do for the sake of others, work that only you have been given, work that you are uniquely prepared for. And when you're passive in your devotion to the Lord as a living sacrifice, you are withholding yourself and the gifts God has given you for us. You're withholding that from us. Don't do that. We need you. We need you. Don't wait until you are some sort of uh, arbitrary definition of a strong believer. Start doing it now. Why? Because it's spirit-powered. It's a spiritual gift. It's not you-powered. Start serving others. Now, lots of people at this point start asking themselves or others how they can figure out their spiritual gifting. What part am I? What piece of the body? Uh, and I promise you, you'll figure it out. I mean, you could try taking a test. You know, there's like all these quizzes online, but those are of limited benefit. Really, they just show you what that person thinks your spiritual gifting is or what that test does. And, and sometimes it's fun to see. It's like, oh yeah, that totally feels like me. And sometimes it's like, I couldn't do that. Uh, it's okay. Don't stress. We've already learned how to discover God's good, acceptable, perfect will for your life. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the, by the renewing of your mind. So stay in the word. Pray. Love and prefer others. If you treat them how you want to be treated, it's naturally going to, naturally going to come out, right?
The way you want to be treated is a little different than the way I want to be treated, I'm sure. There's some basics to it. There's some commonality. But as you, as you express your love for others in service, it'll naturally come out. What God has given to you and you give to others, you'll find it. You'll find it. Wonderful stuff. And again, impossible alone. When we grit our teeth and put forth all our effort to do what we ought to under our own power, we end up leaving Jesus behind. Like the church in Ephesus warned in Revelation 2. You guys are, they, he's, you know, Jesus condemned them. They were busy with lots of stuff. They were, perse- they were persevering. They had no tolerance for false doctrine, doing lots and lots of stuff. And Jesus, but Jesus said, I have this against you. You left your first love. See, they started worshiping church more than Jesus. They got busy under their own power and left their love for Jesus behind. The why they were doing the good things they were doing was coming from themselves and not from Christ. They weren't worshiping God as living sacrifices. They were just busy. So, I want to leave you with a question to ponder. Has your faith gotten too comfortable? Too comfy with your flesh? Have you, have you stepped off the front lines to take a breather a little bit, maybe, spiritually? Because this is a fight. This is a race. This is a lifetime struggle. And it's only for like 80 or 90 years if you live long. And then for eternity, it is peace and joy and wonderful. See, we're trading out the lifetime of battling with the flesh in order to attain glorification in him. That is worth it. It's better than the other way around where we get 80 or 90 years of living our best life now and then the worst is yet to come. No, no, no. This life is is the entree. And then Jesus says, oh, hang on to your fork. Dinner's coming. Our dessert's coming. Hang on to your fork. And you're like, oh, I'm ready. (laughs) Bring on the pie. (laughs) Bring on the pie. So I want to give you some questions. I read these in a, a blog article a year ago, and it got me. And so I want to inflict this on you too. <laughs> benevolently, benevolently. I want to ask you some questions. Uh, some, uh, some questions to help you identify maybe you've left the altar of complete sacrifice to God in order to be comfortable, well-liked, independent, uh, successful in the world. Um, here's, some, here's some thoughts. Few ways to tell if your faith has maybe gotten a little too comfy to your flesh. Your friends and coworkers would be surprised to find out you're a Christian. You never think about or even remember the Sunday sermon on Monday or the day after life group or between Sunday and life group. It's just gone. There are no paradoxes, tensions, or unresolved questions when you approach God's word. Do you really have a complete grasp on the teachings of the Bible? Teach me. <laughs> Teach me. But sometimes in comfy, with faith that's comfy in our flesh, we read the word of God and we think, oh, cool, nice, great. And we're not like that guy. We're like that guy in James who looks at the word of God, which is like a mirror, sees his reflection, turns away, and forgets it. We have to look at the mirror of God's word and see that we have cilantro in our teeth and we fix it. We see like, oh, my, why didn't somebody tell me? And we make a change. We see what we need to from God's word. 
Another is there's absolutely no friction, right, left, or middle, between your partisan politics and your Christianity. That one was it's a tough one. You never feel challenged and only affirmed. It's a dangerous place to be. You've never confronted someone in love, or not recently, on their sin, or been confronted on yours. And no one at church, or no one around you, would be able to say uh, how you are growing in Christ-likeness. Obviously, don't raise your hand, but is any of that, does any of that hit? If it hit, uh, remember your heart is not static. God wants to change your heart. God wants to transform you by the renewal of your mind. God wants to do this through you, and he has work for you to do. These 80 or 90 years that we struggle and fight is the time we get to exercise these spiritual gifts for the benefit of the body of Christ because Jesus deserves a strong, healthy body. He deserves it. And so out of gratitude and humility and love, climb back on that altar. Worship God with all your life. No reservations, no limits. I promise you it will be difficult and I also promise you it will be worth it. Promise that. Even better than my promise is the word of God's promise. It's worth it. Let's pray. Lord Father God, thank you for the challenge. Thank you for your word that points out our flaws, that points out where we don't look like you, and gives us the solution, which is to cling to you, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, and let you cover everything. God, we love you. Help us love you more. God, we believe, help our unbelief. God, we want to be used by you in mighty ways, however big or small or visible or invisible. We want to be healthy. Please help us. Please help us be loving, humble servants of those around us. Please give us a deep concern for the members of our body, these people who we are one with, members with. Please give us an utmost concern for them so we can serve and love each other for the sake of your body and your glory and kingdom, God. Please help us. We need help. I need help, God. The battle with the flesh is so real and present, and I cannot do it without surrendering to you, God, saying yes to the spirit and no to the flesh. And I ask that same help for everyone here, that you will help us. Help us be like Josiah. as we King Josiah, as we read your word, we look at the, this, the, the city and the country, we see idols in our heart and we tear them down. Please show us where we are worshiping something other than you so we, cannot, so we can stop presenting our members as instruments of sin but as instruments of righteousness in your hands. We love you and need you a lot. And we thank you for your word. We thank you that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in you. And if there's someone in here who is not yet in you, God, change their heart and bring them to life so they can join us in the pursuit of your glory. We love you, God, and we need you a lot. Amen.